0: This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised.
1: When you from the hood, scary turns to the norm. With my situation, after my mom passed with bankruptcy, money, bills, everything, it was like all crumbling down. Like, I ain't do nothing for eight years. It took me two years to, to walk outside my mom's yard. Anybody wanted to find me, I was on the house that I bought my mom. The house where she passed away, and it was like it was stuck on me. Like my career over with. My granddaddy died. My grandma died. My mama was just that last straw. I never felt that before. Like the bottom of something. I had to let the whole castle come down for me to get back up out and you know build me something strong.
2: With two taps to the head, former NBA player Darius Miles left his stamp on the game of basketball forever. As one of the few players to go straight to the league from high school, to Hoops fans, he's a legend whose contributions to the culture defined a generation. Making it to the NBA changed Darius' life. But he could never fully escape the world he left behind in his hometown of East St. Louis, where violence proliferated. It wasn't until his mother passed away in 2013 after a long battle with cancer that the weight of his experiences growing up in poverty, surrounded by violence, caught up with him. Adding to his grief, he faced injuries on the court and unexpected financial hardship. His grief turned into severe depression until one day he realized he hadn't left his house in eight years. As he struggled to pick up the pieces, Darius was forced to reckon with how unprepared he was to take a leading role in his family and face areas in his life where he had fallen short. From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch.
0: And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh.
2: Welcome to Blindsided.
0: Mental health, sports, and life. I would love to hear a little bit about what it was like growing up in East St. Louis. Tell us a little bit about growing up in your house and in your neighborhood.
1: Uh, Well, East St. Louis uh, is—a lot of people, when they say East St. Louis, they instantly think St. Louis, you know. Uh, But East St. Louis is really Illinois. St. Louis is Missouri, the Mississippi River, like, divide us. Like, I, I can walk out on my front porch and look at the arch from my house, but being on the Illinois side. So it's kind of like being in a place with two different laws, two different states. Like, they kind of ran two different ways. Predominantly black, probably 99. Back in my day, if you was any other color, you was like a crackhead or somebody else that's trying to, you know, distribute something when, <laughs> when you if you came around our hood. But uh, just predominantly black. Every school I went to was predominantly black. All I seen was black. You know, basketball kind of showed me the world, showed me other other cultures, races, foods, religions, you know, uh, just just showed the world by playing basketball. And um, East St. Louis, uh, my dad's size of the family, which my dad wasn't in my life, uh, but my dad's size of the family was, uh, all of them was like tall, dark, Super dark and, and lanky, like the girls and the boys. Uh, my grandmother was like, uh, on my daddy's side, she was like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, my pops was like 6'7", uh, 6'8". Six, six, so that's why I instantly got all their genes. I was little head, skinny, lanky, tall. My mom was a tall female. She was 5'9". She was tall to be a girl. The early years, I was all my years, I grew up uh, in the house with my grandmother and my mom and my granddad. So that that was like the core. I was the only grandchild that kind of grew up in the house with my grandparents and my mom. So I it was like a different a different type of bond and which I always get on my cousins and them about it. It's a it's a different type of bond between me and the grandparents and and my mom. So I grew up in uh I went to Dunbar Elementary School. And I went there from kindergarten to sixth grade. When I was in probably third grade, I was, man, probably about five eight, <coughs> five nine. I was well over the third grader. And I always just been the tallest kid in the school and I uh just went through school, you know, just went through the, the usual stuff, uh of uh, growing up in the poverty, uh from from gangs to drugs to everything you see. Uh East St. Louis has always been one of the murder capital in the world, not because it just has so many people, but because it's, it's so many killings with less with, with so much less people. You know what I'm saying? And and i just seen a lot. Coming up in East St. Louis, you see a lot, you learn a lot. But basketball kind of showed me the world to see as another side to, to that.
0: I spent a huge amount of time with my grandparents growing up as well, and they were so important in my life. Can you tell us a little bit about... Your grandmother, your grandfather, and also about your relationship with your mom as you grew up, especially when you're growing up in a place where there is a lot of of guns and violence and gangs.
1: Yeah, uh, growing up with my being in the house with my grandparents, I always had that 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 help, that extra help. You know, it's, it's you know, you know, you need that extra help with a man, you know, with your mom, but. With your grandparents and you in the house, they not nothing, nothing slip. If my mom don't got it, you know they'll cover the back end on it. Especially if it's it's something positive that that I'm doing. But you know, uh, just that was a small part of me that I I got that uh, my other cousins and everybody else didn't get from having being in the house with my grandparents. It's like I I got everything, and that that different type of bond of. Growing up with them, it was always cool. They Their door was always open. And it was the family house. So everybody in the family, when they come into town or if they, they coming down to visit my grandma and stuff, they, it was like they was coming to my house. So, you know, it was like a different outlook than, you know, what any of my other cousins or anybody else could have. And my mom is, uh, she was like my rock, my best friend. I didn't have a male figure, so she had to be tough to make me tough. but she's a tough girl. She didn't graduate from high school. She drove school buses for I think like 25 years or so. That's how I used to get to school. I used to have to get up extra early than the other kids. It paid off in the long run. I never used to want to do it back then, but like in the long run, it all by getting up extra early, getting up at the four and five in the morning to go to the station and get the bus. And then ride half of her route and have her just go outside her route just to drop me off. She played softball for the Lady Cardinals. You know, she's I played softball, left hand, first baseman. That was like my first real kind of experience of of like sports and in it. I always remember like every time we go into a softball game, I, I'm hitting the snow cone man up. All the time, like, I got to get me a snow cone, get me a popcorn, go on, sit in my spot, you know, watch the game and watch her play sports. And a lot of people around the city, like, knew who she was before I was even kind of thought of. A lot of people back in the day, they used to tell me, I remember when your mom used to ride the 10-speed and she used to have the baby seat on the back of the 10-speed and she used to be riding, going to the games or going to my grandmother's house. And I remember them days as being real young. I remember I was too big for the 10-speed. I had to keep them legs a little bit out. (laughs) At one point, where we couldn't ride it no more. But that was, at one point, that was our transportation, you know what I'm saying, to where we needed to go. East St. Louis, only 89 blocks, three different ways. Just coming up with her, she became my best friend. She became somebody I could find in and trust with being in such a a dangerous place, so-called to say. Because... with so much bad influence around and so much that nobody's really came up out of there or, or did nothing or you can't see nothing. But what you see every day out in the street, you know, she was, she was definitely a big guide to, to certain moves I made, certain things I did. And I ain't saying that I ain't bumped my head. Cause I bumped my head a whole lot of time. But if I did, some of the stuff that stuck into me, if I did a quarter or 10% of that, I probably wouldn't be here to this day from not listening to her. So she became just everything for me. Uh, first time her health got on me and broke me down, when I was in high school, and it was my first year of high school, she had open heart surgery, triple bypass surgery. My grandmother had it before like twice. So it kind of ran in the family and so forth on. and one day, I came back, and she just had she had a heart attack, and that kind of crushed me.
0: I mean, it sounds like your grandparents, your mom, were really solid and, and wonderful people. Did you feel like you got to be a kid when you were young with everything that was going on around you? Was, was, was it scary growing up despite having that support in your family?
1: When you from the hood, scary turns to the norm. You know what I'm saying? It's normal to hear gunshots outside. It's normal for your your friends' brothers or your friends to die. It's normal for us to go to funerals when we 9, 8, 10 years old because, you know, a friend that lost his daddy, his uncle or his brother through what's going on in the street. So, you know, you, you start to get numb to what What goes on and and coming from that type of environment, like my household was cool. Like I I definitely noticed that we had corporate and central air in our house and cable and the homeboys (laughs) that I was hanging with my friends, they didn't or they weren't getting the the type of meals that I was getting. But that didn't mean just because my house was clean and I had clean clothes and I had a meal that I wasn't in the middle of the jungle.
2: There must have been so much pressure on you to come out of East St. Louis. And did you feel that pressure from that community in that area to be the guy, to be the role model to get out of uh, East St. Louis as one of the
1: best basketball players of all time? Of course. Carried it with pride, you know. Just as many people in East St. Louis love me as just as many people who hate me. But I tried to represent basketball-wise the best that I, I could. I came back to the city all the time and let the kids see me and be around for that because we never had that, you know? It was Jackie Joyner-Kersey and and um, Fonzo Ellis and Brian Cox and these these people. But they're superstars from the early 90s, late 80s, you know? And I didn't graduate from high school to 2000. So, you know, they, they got families. Not saying that they supposed to come back and just do the most, but they got families been around the world and they live in different states. So you understand they're not coming back as much. Like our kids didn't see NBA kids. That's why I try to go as much high school and stuff like that to experience that like, oh, that was an NBA guy who came to my game. We didn't have all that. So the guys that was coming, the NBA teams that was coming to my high school, coming in the middle of the hood and all this stuff that was getting that, that was never being done before.
2: I mean, I was 20 when I finally went to my first NHL camp. What was that like for you getting out of high school? And just you know, right into the NBA. I remember my first training camp. I was with men that, and there was a couple muscles on guys that I'd never seen before. Like, Definitely was. <laughs> and going from a, being a boy uh, to a man, what was that like for you uh, personally?
1: It was challenging. You know, it was challenging. I was, I was up for the challenge though. Like, uh, I I couldn't believe, but I was embracing everything that came my way from the time that they announced me to the McDonald's game. I, I played in the McDonald's game, did good. They said I can go draft high and then did the workouts. I just embraced everything and just went with it. Because once you kind of made a decision back then, like you locked in, you can't go back. And one thing that I always felt free from the world was, was playing basketball. Like, I can't go to jail. I can't get in trouble. The best, only thing you can do is kick me out. And that was, like, my free space. So I'm comfortable, like, with whoever watching, whenever time to play. Like, that wasn't, like, how some guys have a, you know, they get the little jitters and stuff for the games and stuff. I That was my most comfortable place. In my first two years, even the, you know, the ups and downs, no matter what it does, I had my guys. Like, I've been knowing Q since I was, like, 15 years old. Now about 14. So I've been knowing him about four years. I played with him in AAU. Our family built a rapport. We, You know, we played on the same AAU team, so I knew him. So to get drafted with him, it was like already there a connection. I knew Corey from being from Chicago and playing against him, knew Keon through the circuit. It wasn't a crazy adjustment because I always played with grown men. Only time I w- or played or been around grown men, only time I was around kids my age, Outside of a few homeboys was when I was at school or I was playing for my school. Outside of that, I was playing in grown men leagues, and I hung out with them a lot because the competition level of me was so high that I wanted to play with the best of the best in the city. So the adjustment of that, of being around older dudes, really wasn't no adjustment. And then I, I, I got lucky. You know, I got drafted with three other guys that's 20 years and younger. I'm just 18, like... So it was just familiar faces. So it made my transition in easier.
2: And what was that like the first time you, you probably lined up against one of your idols growing up? I know you played against Kobe, you played against Michael, or I mean, you did play against Michael, right? Or,
1: yeah, I played against Michael when he was with the Wizards. But, but KG was the one, um, he was the one for me. He was the one I watched, I seen, I em, emulated, uh, had a lot of my game after his. And uh, just playing against him, squaring up against him, that was the one. And every time I seen him, I, you know, you want your your idol or somebody you look up to like that to see you and admire you and appreciate your game. So when I played against him, it was like, yeah, I'm I'm here to play. What did you learn playing against him? Just did how you, good he you was, get, you know. It's just go, different yeah. when you get him in front of you than you see him on TV. How big he was, you know. In the NBA, you size guys up. I got to instantly size you up to see if I'm going to be posting you up or I got to take you out on the perimeter. And um, just seeing how big he was, man, and man, all the way down to the, the jersey number. The reason I wore 21 was because of Kevin Garnett. And, you know, just to get there, play against him, guard him, that's what I, you know, one of the dreams I dreamed of.
0: How did your relationship with East Saint change when you were playing did you see the people, where you were from differently?
1: After a couple of years of leaving and coming back, I did. I started seeing how slow my city was compared to the rest of the world, you know? Yeah, it, it, looked, it, looked, it, looked, it started looking different. But I was a person that I, like, as soon as the season over with, I was in East St. Louis. Like, right back on the block. The most dangerous place in the world for me was the most comfortable place in the world for me. If you get what I'm saying, like uh, so as soon as my season was over, I was back in East St Louis. I didn't leave East St Louis until it was time for me to go back <laughs> to the season, and that's why I spent most of my time at my first man, probably six seven summers. I was at East St. Louis when you went back, did you feel like you had
2: to almost that you almost had to try to save everybody that you that you could from that? From that area, and you had a friend that actually—I I think he—he he had passed um, on the streets. Yeah, and he was a really good friend of yours. It probably must have just crushed you inside.
1: Yeah, it, it, I wasn't trying to save everybody or so forth. I was just taking care of problems that you know some of my friends that had. Like it's wintertime, their mom don't got no. No heat or something. It'd be like, dog, you around me every day. We eating out and all this shit, and you ain't tell me your mom don't got no heat? Your sister got a baby in there? It's stuff like that. But my homeboy, Dracy, my mom used to call him her son. He rode her school bus, and he remembered me when I was younger. And uh, he's about eight, maybe 10 years older than me. She just took a liking to him. He was real dark like me. We looked, He looked like my big brother. And she used to always call him a son, and they built a rapport. I remember he went off to the Army, and the first basketball goal that I ever had, he bought it. Bought me a goal, had the stick on it. He didn't. even he brought the cement. He didn't put a hole right next to a house in the field and put the gold up. You know, so we always had a rapport. When I was in high school, you know, he used to let me get the car you know, ride around with the girls or the homies. You know, he was just always like a big brother. So I had him come out when I I got traded to Cleveland. I had him come to Cleveland to stay with me. So the whole season he stayed with me, you know, picked me up from, you know, took me to practice, picked me up from the plane, you know, make sure stuff was straight. You know, we we together. My other homeboy stayed out there with us. We all stand in the big old house. We good, and and we kind of fell out a little bit at the end. Not, not nothing crazy big that we was done talking to each other and so forth on, but we definitely was mad at each other. And it was like, it was time to go home after the season. So, you know, we, we go home and me and my two, home, we from different hoods. So if we from different hoods, they go their way, I go my way and we meet back in the middle, you know? But we are all cool. And and he went to stay with his sister. And uh, man, the, the story I got, is a girl liked him, you know, he was the new, I guess the new guy on the block, the girl liked him and he really wasn't kind of giving her play and her boyfriend got a, kind of got mad about it. And so his, her boyfriend came and confronted him and was fighting him. So he think they're, they're fist fighting and he had a knife the whole time. And when he walked back in the house, he collapsed. You know, I put a lot on me on that one and I had to take that one on the chin. And, you know, it wasn't nobody you could consult with or talk about and really have this communication. Now I'm grown enough to have a communication with somebody or talk to it or whether I would talk to it with my own other homeboy or not. But it, it was a lot. It was just because it was only we just got there and it couldn't been no more than two, three weeks we was at home. And next thing you know, we didn't see him no more.
0: It becomes normal that you. You have your friends who die or, or your friends' parents or loved ones. But how does it affect you over time? Do you think that you're, you were affected by that emotionally?
1: I think it was all bottled up and kind of pushed to the side and rolling with it. So it was like out of all the death I would seen, out of all the funerals I done paid for, out of all the friends I would lost, it was always like I got my mama. That was that one thing that I had that made me so confident in myself that I believe I can do anything, because I know she believed it. So I always was like that, even confidence in basketball. When I started playing basketball and I was confident in myself, I needed that one person to believe in me, and then i will go and do the rest, and that was my mom. So once I lost her, that's when I started feeling type of feelings, my body feeling weak and Not because I was doing something, because I was just going through it about my mom. So many things going on in your life
2: towards the end of your career. You know, I guess kind of a timeline of how things went for you, injuries, passings of people you love, you know, and the depression. Um, What were the years and the timelines of those? And how, I guess, really ultimately did that lead into your depression?
1: Yeah, I just think, uh, I think life. And like I said, my mom being my last backbone, that just hit me hard. Because like a lot of stuff is just, you just numb to it. Because I've seen a lot of death and a lot of that goes on from, from coming up from where I came from. But my mom had open heart surgery, triple, triple bypass open heart surgery when I was in 10th grade. Um, I went straight out of high school two years later. I uh, played for LA for two years. When I got to Cleveland, she found out that she has cancer. At the time, I don't even really know what cancer is. And when she found out she had cancer, she didn't make a big deal out of it. I didn't make it, so I didn't make a big deal out of it. It wasn't no crazy shift, so I didn't pay it no mind. You know, she did. She looked the same way. She was going to chemo. We was in Cleveland going to the Cleveland Clinic. I I didn't. You know, it's just the natural, just you know, older you know, folks thing. I know, you know, she older, so, you know, my grandmother, you know, she had all them surgery. So I'm just thinking it's just, you know, just the process. And um she had that, we ain't heard nothing else about it, so for a phone, and then she caught liver cancer. That was the first cancer she caught. She caught colon cancer when I got when I got to Portland. So now she has colon cancer. So, uh, going through the whole process while I'm in Portland. I'm in Portland for about seven years. So, you know, the whole process of chemos and all that stuff. And she had to have, like, two surgeries while we was down there. So, she had the uh, colon cancer. Then we uh, she mo- finally moved back. Instead of moving to every city that I was going to, she finally moved back home. Because uh, St. Louis had great cancer doctors. You know, one of the top uh, cancer uh, facilities in America. So, she was in... Uh, she was in, back home from i want to say 2008 or 2007 on and on and um you know she just had the cancer on and off chemos chemos every tuesday and thursday she uh like i said the colon cancer would made me pay attention to it because she lost to her hair and she felt that like she felt away about her losing to her she started about wigs and stuff like that and I seen that touch her. So that made my eyes, my antennas lift up like, man, like what's going on? What is cancer? So she's back home, and um in December, she, she picked up the dog, she broke her arm. She had a stroke in January. In February, she picked up uh she tried to pick up something to drink, her other arm broke. May she she passed away. My best friend's birthday is the day we had the funeral on his birthday, oh, i so Memorial Day man. weekend. So that's kind of so how it always yeah. went down. That March, she called me because when she broke up, after she had the stroke, I instantly flew down, stayed there for like two weeks. She was like, all right, you can go on back to Atlanta because I was living in Atlanta. I went back to Atlanta to kind of get my stuff together because some told me, like, I need to just go back home. But I was like, man, I'm just going to finish the school year for my son, and then, like, in the May or something, I'm going to go back home. She called me, like, end of March, beginning of April, like, yeah, come home. So I came home. So, you know, me and my pops, which my pops, was 24-hour nursing service, you know, like, every day. He was there, I was there. We just at the house. We camped out at the house. All the fellas or anybody, they just, you come over the house and, you know, the every day stuff. Like I said, hats off to my pops from every step of the way. Cause like, man, he wiped up shit, like cleaned her up and stuff when she couldn't do it herself.
0: Did you know she was dying then, Darius? Did you know then?
1: We knew she was dying because the hospital wouldn't take her no more. Like there's right. nothing else we can do with you. So we just got to send you home. Yeah. And then, and like my granddaddy died from cancer. He had throat cancer. I can see his body dissolve. You know, when your body gets to the point where it's dissolving and it looks like it's skin on bones, it's like, yeah, you don't have that much time. And that's how my mom. My mom always been a full-size woman. I've never seen my mom skinny it since back in the day when she was she went a skinny girl then. She was in shape, you know, a full-size woman. And uh the day that she passed away, uh my pop's been, you know, he's been going hard for days, 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 and we there. So I, you know, I went. Down to my grandma's block where my little cousin was staying, came back up. And I was like, Pop, go ahead and, you know, go and see your, your homeboys, have a drink, relax. I got my mama, everything cool. He left. He didn't, he, he didn't stay gone that long. He came back. When he came back into the house and went in the house, something just told me that that was just the end. So when he came back out, he told me to come here. And you know, I came here and that's when he told me like she passed away. When I walked in the room, she had like a last tear drop on her face. I kissed her and then, you know, we called everybody we supposed to call to handle it. I don't know what I would have did if I would have went bankrupt and my mom was going through what she was going through. You know, like when she left her, everything was still intact. You know, that's one of them gift and curse moments too. You know, I'm glad she didn't see because one of the things she's always used to tell me was like, "Man, I just I, I can I can be peaceful long as I know you straight. I'm cool. I can leave on. I can go on and do what I need to do long as I know that you straight. Leaving her knowing you straight. So when I left, she knew I was straight, but she didn't know what was really like ahead of with the bankruptcy. So like, I wouldn't know what I would do if my mom was going through that. And I had to get up out that house, or you know what I'm saying, and go through the whole bankruptcy and all that stuff. But I'm glad I didn't go through that. You know, everything happened for a reason. You know, and I, I thank God I didn't put nothing in front of me that I can't handle. Sorry
2: isn't a strong enough word for what you went through with that. As professional athletes, people look up to us like we're the toughest of the tough, we're the strongest of the strong. All the guys, a you, Yeah, all the guys you played with, all the guys you played against. And my guess is your mom is probably the strongest person you've
1: ever known. Definitely.
0: When you had to, your knee got messed up. You couldn't keep playing. Did all that difficult time sort of lower your your view of yourself?
1: I was very confident basketball wise, but once they told me that I couldn't play, like, oh, you get microfracture surgery, you, know, you might not be able to walk in a couple of years, let alone play. They told me that at a time when my grandfather was about to pass away. My grandmother was on, I was going to chemotherapy with my mom that my team didn't even know, this is what I'm doing. You know? Like nobody asked me like, man, how your mom doing? I'm leaving her going to the hospital, chemotherapy with my mom because she was going through something when we was in Portland. But that was the biggest thing. It was like, man, you taking the one thing that gives me my freedom, away from the world or everything, and the closest three people to me is on a down spiral. That was everything in a nutshell. So that's what I feel like after it all fails, I, I ho- hold it together as long as I could. You know, I wasted two two years. I wasn't mentally prepared to even try to be on a team at the end of the my last two years that I even pushed them out, the Grizzly and all that stuff, even push them out, I, I, I shouldn't have did it. I, that was a waste of money and time, but out of all that and so forth on, going through that with them, them couple of years, my mama was just that last straw, where it was like, yeah, you can't you can't run from it now, because now you don't have that one person that you can just kind of back up on, like my granddaddy died, my career over with, my grandmom died, I got my mama to lean on.
0: Man, that's why I'm saying it's a yeah. lasagna. Yeah, so Darius, it was like, just layer after layer. Yeah, so like there, once she
1: kind of went, that's what I never felt that. Like I'm I'm confident, very confident in myself. I never felt that before, like the bottom of something. Like, no, I still see sunlight at the end of the tunnel. But that one was like, yeah, it all closed down.
0: What happened when your mom passed away? What happened to you? emotionally?
1: Uh, just, man, the, depressed and lonely feeling, like feeling real, like abandoned, lonely, like I don't have nobody. Like I couldn't, uh, still to this day, I still feel that way. It's hard for me to receive love. It's hard to me for me to receive love because I feel like I lost the one that, that made me the strongest I can be.
0: When people say the word depression, they mean, it really means different things to different people. So when you said, I, I felt depressed, what was it like for you? Because it sounded like you really didn't do much of anything for, for a year.
1: No, I didn't do nothing for eight years. Eight <laughs> like, years. I didn't do nothing for eight years. It took me two years to, to walk outside my mom's yard. Like I didn't go nowhere but around the corner to the store, and I could have rode the four-wheeler to the store and came back. When I ordered food, anything, anybody wanted to find me, I was on the house that I bought my mom, the house where she passed away. And it was like, it was stuck on me. Not only was it stuck on me, you know, like I'm the, I'm the head of the family now, you know, like in how it goes with a lot of black people, like whoever got the most money is the head, not just because they the brains of the operation, it's just he got the most money. You know what I'm saying? But my mom's was the brain of the operation. She was the youngest sibling. She was the one that raised most of all her brothers and sisters' siblings. Most of my cousins come to my mama before they'll go to their own mama (laughs) to talk about their problems or to get something straight when this comes within the family. So she holded it a whole lot together that, like, I didn't realize I wasn't a man until... My mama passed away. I didn't realize that I wasn't being a man. You know, one of them things I used to say, I'm a grown-ass man. Just because you got a million dollars in your pocket, you're not a grown-ass man. So now when I see young kids, it'd be like, yeah, I'm 21 years old. I pay my own bills and I got my own car and all that. It'd be like, but you ain't grown, though. Just because you pay a bill don't make you grown, like experience and wisdom and, you know, different stuff like that that, that grows you to be adult, I realized a lot of things. It was a gift and a curse. I went through hating the world. Like I hated the world when my mom passed. I couldn't blame it on nobody or nothing like that because she died of cancer. But I hated the world, you know? Then I had to forgive the world. I had to forgive everybody in the world. You know, I hated everybody who played with me. You took 50 cent from me, I hate you. Everything, everybody, I just hate the world. And I kept myself away from good people who really loved me and bad people that didn't need to be around me. You know, that was the sacrifice I did because the space I was in. So I had to kind of remove myself from the ones that actually wanted to show me love. I got to a point where I had to forgive the world. Then I beat myself up about it. You know, I I had to get to the point where I had to be stopped mad at myself and forgive myself. Then I was back to ready to kind of get through it and, and go through the stages of me. And that was just me on me. You know, that wasn't me going to therapy or me asking somebody or doing something and so forth on. That was me on me. But I, had, I needed to get through that because when my mom passed, I had to be strong for everybody. I couldn't look weak. I had to keep it together. Like my pops almost killed himself like three times. In car accidents, because he was just drinking and just going through it, because he lost everything. But one thing, like I say, it's a gift and a curse. Me and my pops, my mom, husband, he ain't my real dad, but we have a great relationship, and we talk way more now than we ever did. And it's not like we had a problem or it was something like that. He's not a big communicator. I'm not a big communicator. But that was our in-between right there. <laughs> you no know, it was it was we didn't have to say it we already understood it but now when she was gone we had to actually talk and kind of communicate and and get a different type of relationship you with know that like he he stayed with her all the way down to her last breath
0: i've treated a lot of ptsd in my life and i it tends to be I hope you get this this analogy. It tends to be like a lasagna, layer, 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 lots of layers, and they're all different. And it sounds like despite the fact that you had really strong, loving grandparents and your mom there, that there's trauma from the environment you're in and the losses and then the lo- losing your grandparents. And like so many people, your mom she was it. She was that link. She was the, unfortunately, the cheese on top of that lasagna that led you to really struggle. But like so many people, you say it was a blessing and a curse. I mean, losing your mom was horrible, but you grew from that experience. Can you talk a little bit about how you got there? What was the path from, I hate everyone. I have to bury my mom and I hate everyone. And now I'm forgiving and What were the steps to get through that for you?
1: My kids, my kids was the steps. Like uh, through that process, I didn't get the opportunity to be in my kid's life the way I wanted to be in my kid's life. So they thinking about my kids every day after everything that I'm thinking about. It's like, man, I got to pick myself up, get my shit together so I can be in my kid's life and and be something for them, some type of God or something for them or give some type of effort Because, you know, I owe them more than that, definitely more than that, so I need to pick my ass up. And my mama didn't raise me to be like that. Like, all my friends' kids love me. For me not to be in my kid's life the way I want to be in my kid's life, shit, I think about that. So that's what I was doing. That's what kept me just going. Them days, like, man, I got to get my shit together. Because it was like, uh, with, with my situation, after my mom passed, with bankruptcy, money, bills everything it was like all crumbling down so even with it crumbling down it really wasn't nothing i could do at that moment so i had to let the whole castle come down before i even start putting one brick one piece of wood <laughs> you know putting one nail and one board together i had to let the whole house come down for me to get it back up out and you know build me something strong
2: Diane, I don't think I had the chance to talk about grief on the show yet. It's probably one of the most universal feelings. And everybody or everyone has or will lose crucial people in their lives. And I think we, sh- we need to talk about it. Of course, grief looks different for everybody. But what are some common examples about grief that might manifest in someone?
0: Grief is so painful, and it's a really difficult journey and most especially if you've lost someone that you really deeply love. To me, grief is the price that we pay for love. Most of us wouldn't give up the opportunity to love because it's, it so enriches our lives, but we will lose someone that we love. And so I try to focus with my patients on moving through grief in a way that you're able to get your life back again. But grief really does look a lot like depression in many ways because we feel sad. It, it affects your appetite and how you sleep. But when it becomes pathological, that's when it's a problem. When it goes on and on and it affects your functioning, your ability to live your life, it really can take over and become very difficult to overcome.
2: Flat out, I'll say grief sucks. I've felt depression before, but when I lost someone close to me, like grief was another level. It certainly was. And it's something like, when does grief turn into depression or does depression turn into grief or what is it?
0: When grief turns into depression, it's a really serious situation because grief is already painful enough. It settles in your body and it lives inside you. And then when you become depressed, you're not able to function. You're not able to do the normal things that you do. And the grief stays. It's not like we can treat... The depression, and suddenly you feel better because you're still grieving that loss. So it's much more complicated kind of depression that people experience when when it's associated with grief.
2: So, I mean, I turned to alcohol, and it was when I stopped drinking is when I finally healed. Because you try and go around it, and the only way to heal is to go right through the middle and to deal with it. I'll even say this: I'm living proof that the booze only prolonged the pain. (laughs) It really it kept me from healing. So. Grief is on nobody's timeline but your own. And sometimes people want to put a timeline on your grief, but they also don't want to be that sounding board eventually. And how do you deal with that?
0: It was one of the most frustrated I remember feeling when I was dealing with... I had a patient who had a a horrible loss of a child and them telling me how people were telling her, well, it's been a year. Shouldn't you be over it by now? And as a mother thinking... uh, you don't recover from that. You find a new normal. But for someone to try to put a timeline on your grief around your child seem to be absolutely obnoxious. And people have these beliefs. Well, you got a year, and then, you know, you should get through it. Grief is deeply personal. It takes time. And your friends, though, there's a limit. Empathy has its limit. And so that's why people often find that it's helpful to talk in a peer support group work with a psychologist especially if you're finding that that grief is just not going away or you're self-medicating to try not to manage it your friends won't be able to carry that burden with you some will have more time and others and more ability but at at some point people struggle to carry someone else's burden and that's when peer support or working with a psychologist can be very helpful it's also a sign of when you've moved from normal grief into pathological grief when it's become depression because your friends are so powerfully important in getting through grief in the beginning. But if it's so prolonged that your friend's patience is being lost, or if you're pushing your friends away, which is really a sign of depression, that's when professional help is important.
2: You often talk about the straw that broke the camel's back. Do you think in Darius' situation there was kind of that last straw?
0: I really do. You know, Darius had a lot of challenges in his life. And I think starting from his childhood, and we always have to think about where people come from, the traumatic experiences they may have, the kind of chaos in their lives. But then there were physical injuries, financial struggles, losing his job, and how wrapped up that is, in his identity. And I think his mom's death was that final straw. So he he set layers of really difficult things, but he was able to cope. But that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And you can see from his story that he really developed a serious mental health issue. Clearly, he had depression. But what he described to us was this all-consuming grief, isolation, pain, and just a complete inability to function, not allowing anyone else in. And imagine eight years of, of pain and trying to process that that loss. That was probably much more severe because of all of the other things that had built up that he didn't have to deal with. And with his mom's death, everything just became overwhelming.
2: And head on top of that, who he was, he would have never been out of the public eye. And I can imagine he just wanted just to shut away and just leave me alone. Media can be relentless and cruel. And even going through everything he went through, I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like in some of the, the shots that some of the media probably took at him. And he's a human being already in that much pain. Like I can't imagine what that would do to a human being. And I can understand why he would just want to shut out from the world for that long.
0: And Darius showed us through his childhood that he was a resilient guy. He was a tough guy. And that probably came from the people around him who loved him through his involvement in sports. Just the kind of character he was. He was a resilient young man and ended up making it an incredibly difficult sport. But what happens is with time and when you're hit with just one major stressor after another... It can actually degrade your resilience, and you're not able to get through things and come through stronger. And as a matter of fact, sometimes, as what happened with Darius, especially with that final straw of losing his mom, is that he didn't have the ability to pull himself through that, at least right away but probably that core of resilience was still there. His years of athleticism, the love of his mom and the people that were important to him, his friends, was that seed that germinated and for him to be able to grow his resilience again. You, you can't think that this man is not resilient given what he's come through and and what his journey in life is now. So that's that's an important thing to remember is that Wherever you are on the resiliency teeter-totter, you don't feel very resilient or you're really resilient, you can learn to be more resilient. And when you learn to be and build your own resilience, you also build that of those around you.
2: You, you talk about, as you call them, your pops. Um, And you've opened up to him and there's so much especially in sport there's so much masculinity of of not crying of not talking about your feelings i I can't imagine where you grew up you couldn't show any weakness at all not at all and what was that like to finally feel like you know you could open up and, and talk to him or even talk to a friend a male friend that you know, you trusted that you were able to open up to? And was it him? Was there another friend that helped you through it? And how did you come to that conclusion that you needed to talk to somebody that was another male role model?
1: Just, uh, like I say, the forgiveness stages, man. Just looking at me and my friends and my homeboys and look at the stuff I did good, but the stuff I made mistakes in. You know what I'm saying? And just look at my friends. Like, man, we... The best way to learn how to be a man is to talk to a man. And I never had a man or really gave a man a chance. Even if my pops was trying to do that, I didn't give him a chance to do that. But he didn't, it's not his fault because he didn't get that. That was one of the biggest things that I was seeing amongst me and my homeboys or, or, People in, in uh, my homeboys and they pops or their family in their house, like financial literacy. Like I, I, I filed for bankruptcy. You can sit in the house and eat a meal with, with your family for 18, 20 years and y'all don't have one conversation about paying a bill, how to write a checkout, how to walk in a bank, how you supposed to take care of a budget or anything, and just looking at, like, you know, such sort of stuff just was crazy to me. And I, that's why I say That was the point where I was beating up myself. I was disappointed I wasn't a man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, you couldn't tell me I'm not a man. You know what I'm saying? And I don't take care of my business. And I wasn't. And, you know, when you get so much money, straight out of high school, you get so much money, and so you throw money at it. You know, and that's not always the the easiest thing to, to do. The ways I heard some of the people say that I, I was, not saying that I'm a bad person, but, you know, because it's like, man, I, I didn't see that. Why I didn't see that? Because I was paying attention to everything else was was on. It went from, you know what I'm saying, to it was like a tunnel vision to the whole screen got big. And I could see everything. Like some people, generations of families don't have a, no type of communication. And like, I'm not a big talker. I don't talk a lot. I every time I say something, I try to make it mean something. Like my mom told me, you know, just don't be talking all the time and just be blabbering. So to, to not communicate, have them conversation, me and my best friend have better conversations now. And I've been knowing him since third, fourth grade. These last, Five six years, the way we've communicated, it's been so much better than the last twenty years I'd known him. That's because I'm open to communication, and I make sure we have an understanding. I'm not afraid to say something to him or or give him that because I'm he knows that I'm not coming at him in that type of manner. But if we don't communicate or have a, no type of conversation, it's like man, how do we know? Like, why we didn't have, I had all this money, why we didn't have a conversation about that? About what we should do and how we move instead of be paying for everything or this. It, it's not his fault. It's what I wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? But the communication is there now.
0: You've used your friends to help to raise you up when you've really struggled. But you also mentioned that you've talked to therapists before. Has that been helpful?
1: Yeah, it's definitely helpful. Uh, I think... I think is uh, important. I think a lot of people should try it, you know. it's you know, Sometimes it, it is hard to talk to a friend, a family member, your spouse, uh, anybody, but to, to kind of release something to somebody who have no agenda and just want to know what you're talking about, that helps sometimes. Because sometimes they're understanding, you know, they can see it another way or get you to look at some things another way and. Kinda of release that out your mind, I feel like it release certain stuff. I'm not big on holding stuff because I be like, I gotta move forward because uh I got too much other stuff to do. I can't I can't let that sit on me because I felt like when my mom passed, I let it sit on me too long. A lot of stuff I just don't let sit on me. You know, I try to get past it and try to move forward. And if I can't correct it, I try to just move past it.
0: And how does it help? How does it help to talk to someone? Is it just unburdening yourself? What's the what's the the great gift you get when when it's working for you?
1: Talking to somebody you don't know that that's not gonna judge you and just trying to understand your thoughts. Like, why you think that way? Like, why is 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 it that way? Why why is that so bad that you feel that way? You know what I'm saying? And just understand more. Like, understand the world. You got kids in, in work from East St. Louis, they don't have no access to a doctor. And if they get some money, the first thing they're doing is not going to give it to no therapist. So, like, you know, you just got to explore the world. Find out that there's more things out there that, that for something that you're going through, it, it might be something that can help fix that. And a lot of people just don't know that.
2: I think I, you said early in the talk was is that, you know, we don't tell people we love them. And, I, I mean, I had, a, I had a tragedy about four years ago, a girlfriend that had taken her own life. Um, but it taught me that life is, is precious and that I don't care if you're a guy friend. I don't care uh, who you are. I'm going to tell you that I love you, you know, at the end of the conversation. How do we teach men in general to, you know, be able to feel comfortable like that? It took me a tragedy to be able to say, you know what? I'm going to tell everybody I love them. Uh, I don't care if you're male, female. I don't care what you are. How can we get through to our other male friends and people and teach them that it's okay? It's okay to tell your friends I, that you I love just, them. It's okay I, to be a man.
1: Like I was telling this guy, I just went to the Allen Iverson thing. I was saying the, the hardest thing for a man to do is be vulnerable to another another man. And to me, on or, or my sense, I always, I I, I tell my kids, I t- tell my loved ones, I love them. When I'm on the phone with my homeboy before I get off the phone, love. Might not be like I love you, but love. All right, bro, yeah. love. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you know, yeah. like and I just do it to show where I'm at in it. You know? I don't I don't look for it back. I don't I don't need it back. I'm doing it for me. You know what I'm saying? So when they do it and they do it back, and I got homeboys that don't say nothing. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Oh, like yeah. I got homeboys <laughs> that say love. <laughs> you know, right back yeah. at me. So you know, it is, is what it is.
2: I know that they appreciate it though. Definitely. Uh, even if they don't say something back, I, I believe that they
1: appreciate it.
0: Now that you've come through the other side, done all that work, are you able to look back and see your strengths as an athlete, as a as a player?
1: Yeah. I see them, you know. I I, I talk my shit here and there, you know. (laughs) But uh, it's just, like I say, receiving the love is like, it's it's still a little, it's a a big process for me. You know, I appreciate all the love or appreciate anybody who liked the way I played basketball and did my thing or carried myself or what I brought to the culture. But just me personally, like, it's hard to receive it, you know. I'm content with what I did. Definitely blessed for the opportunity, blessed to even be, Mentioned with the 5,000 or 6,000 players that ever played the game. I'm, I'm blessed to be that. Blessed to become out of high school, all that. I wish I would have did better. You know, we always, always do. We we come into it thinking we finna be Hall of Famers and stuff. But, you know, I'm content with it. I'm happy with it. I'm I'm cool with it. I don't have no problem. I never did it to be the most famous player or nothing like that. I did it because I enjoyed it and I wanted to win playing basketball. So... I'm cool with everything,
0: Darius. You're now um, you have a podcast, Knuckleheads. What have you learned from that? What What's the impact on your life?
1: Uh, Knuckleheads been a, a been great for me because uh, first of all, I, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do the cameras and microphones, but it, it turned to something that's great, good therapy, good good release, good just happy energy all the time. Every time we we do an episode. And I, I didn't want to do it unless we focused on nothing but positivity, you know. Like we didn't want no clickbait. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be involved with asking dumb questions that everybody know or what, how many tickets you got, and what happened with this. I just really went into that, and you know, Players Tribune, and um, they agreed to it. And man, we we created Knuckleheads, and it, it turned out to be just so stress relieving because man, I feel like man, I'm telling telling this fraternity of of men and women stories that need to be told and need to be showing how, yeah, some of my stories might be a little similar here and there, but all of them are are different and unique in their own way, you know? And just to just tell these stories and tell some of my my favorite players, some of my favorite people, some of the people that I just started paying attention to on social media (laughs) since I got it. That I've become a fan of to just interview them and and just get that off and just and show how dope I think they are and me and Q think they are just to be a part of something like this that's a a totally positive podcast is I'm I'm glad that I'm a part of something like that.
0: What is one of your most powerful interviews that really has stuck with you?
1: Actually, the um Diamond the Shields. I was sitting in bed and I seen her uh her E60, and she was talking about how she had a tumor in her back. And uh, I was watching the E60 thing, and uh, man, it was it was just touching. And I remember seeing her at All Star, and I asked her uh, to be on our show. And I didn't know that she just went through what she just went through, and I just seen it. And, and um, she gave us the opportunity to interview her, and uh, man, it was it was dope. It was touching. It was it was funny. It was passionate. It was it was everything, and you know? I'm glad she gave us the opportunity to uh, spend time with her and, and just to just put that out there, some some good energy out there for her to show like how much people love her, care about her, and 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 really ex- excited and happy for her that she can continue her career.
0: Darius, what would you tell your 18 year old self from where you sit now, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were being drafted? something that you've learned that you think is important that you wish you knew then, what would you tell yourself?
1: Financial literacy and uh, patience. You know, take your time just really knowing what you're capable of because uh, I'm the first millionaire of my family. I could change a generation of my family to not grow up in a poverty, restricted neighborhood or anything like that. Like None of my kids live in the hood or nothing like that, but I'm just saying like... That's what that means. When you get that amount of money, you can change a generation of your family that might not have had the opportunity to get none of that and work for people the rest of their whole life.
0: That's what you'd say to the young Darius. What would you say to the the other young people in East St. Louis? What, what's the message to those young people?
1: Keep dreaming. and uh, Don't be scared to talk to nobody about your problems. You know, Don't be scared that somebody's going to judge you just because you have a certain problem. Like, uh, take to people that's kind of you. You know what's right from wrong. Take to them teachers that was looking out for you when you was coming up in school. Take to the, the lady on the, on the corner that always makes sure y'all straight when you're out there playing with your friends. Like, a lot of people along the way, I couldn't be here today if it wasn't for just, like, a lot of people. Like, a lot of people looked out for me in the... Great way, you know, and and like I said, I'm not perfect, but I hope I'm trying to represent them now as best as I can. And um, one thing is about this all love is just like, man, it's a human thing. It's a human emotion. It's not an athlete thing. It's it's not a truck driver thing. It's, It's it's not a bus driver thing. It's a human thing to have these different emotions. You don't know what then traumatized you to make you sway a certain way or, or push a certain person away from you or hide certain things that you hide. But, but communication is the key for a, a community, from, for a country to get together, especially with families, man. We, we be in the house every day with each other, and we don't talk to each other. And, and hopefully I can correct that with my family and everybody can correct that with theirs. Darius, I can teach you how to play goal. I don't think you can
2: teach me how to play basketball. <laughs> I'm 5'10". I don't think you can teach me how to play basketball. I'll teach you how to play goalie, though. (laughs) I
1: I, I was a big St. Louis blues fan, like Cujo, Brett Hall, when when Breski came. Like, you know, because it always came on Channel 11 every, you know, every game they played. So I, I used to, my granddad used to always watch, so I always used to just watch them. And that's what made me become a fan of the blues. Kelly Chase Tony Twist yes yeah some tough tough dudes yeah Yeah. oh my goodness I I knew he was gonna win it when we got (laughs) when we got the great one and and it just didn't happen yep yeah all good thanks Thanks, Darius thank you
0: Darius
2: playerstribute.com